Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless is joined by Gary Rado from Borrego Health and Brownstein Advisors Drew Littman, Peter Goodlow, and Laura Johnson for a discussion on the newly released Senate Health Care Bill. The group touches on how the new bill differs from the AHCA and the ACA, the proposed cuts to Medicaid, the elimination of the individual mandate, and their thoughts on the possible outcomes and timing of the Senate bill. Thank you for joining us today for the Brownstein podcast series. Joining our podcast today, we have Gary Rado, Senior Vice President of Government and Public Affairs with Borrego Health. Gary also serves on the faculty of the Graduate School of Public Health at San Diego State University. He's known as a veteran in health policy in San Diego County and the greater region. His expertise on the subject of health policy is nationally known, particularly for his leadership in advancing health care access to underserved communities and for his depth of knowledge in the broader health care issues facing our nation. Also joining us today is Drew Littman, Policy Director at Brownstein Hyatt, Drew was most recently a senior counselor to HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell in the Obama administration. And prior to joining HHS, he was the chief of staff for Senator Al Franken from Minnesota, who serves on the Senate Help Committee. Peter Goodlow of Council brings 23 years of experience of developing health policy and legislation as an attorney for the United States House of Representatives. In the House, he was with the Office of Legislative Counsel for many years, and he also spent time with the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Laura Johnson, policy advisor, is well-practiced on issues including early and secondary education, health care, and labor issues. Laura works directly with clients to navigate these complex issues up on Capitol Hill, track legislative issues, and craft strategies for federal health care programs and policies. I'm Kate McCandless, Policy Director here at Brownstein Hyatt, and lead the healthcare policy group for our government affairs clients. We are here today with breaking news. Earlier this morning, the Senate released its version of the ACA repeal and replace bill, following on the heels of the House passed AHCA earlier this year. Senators have been meeting to decide what their version of repeal and replace would look like. Thirteen of them, in fact, have been meeting for several months behind closed doors and have now come up with a product that they believe can get the 50 plus one vote uh, in the Senate to effectively repeal and replace the ACA. As of 9.30 this morning, other Republican senators who had not yet been involved in this process were able to see the bill, and then shortly thereafter, it was released to the general public. So here we are today, uh, having just a few hours to digest the legislation to talk about some of the fundamental changes that it makes to the AHCA, and more importantly, the changes that it makes to the Affordable Care Act. So, Drew, where do we start? Having lived through some of the efforts to expand enrollment uh, in the Obama administration, remember Obama left office 10 days before the end of our last open enrollment period, OE4. Uh, so we were working hard to, to increase um, uh, purchases of health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. So a couple of macro observations. Under the bill as drafted by the Senate, health insurance will get more expensive Fewer people will be covered, but taxes will be cut for rich people. And I think if you're looking at it as a tax cut bill, 
you can then see how, in terms of health care policy, it's cobbled together to produce the savings that Senate Republicans want to make a tax cut of a certain magnitude. I think the most important thing about the bill is uh, long-term reductions in Medicaid, which really are unprecedented. Medicaid becomes a capped program, and the inflation formula, the formula for calculating increases in costs, will be shifted so that that those increases will be made smaller than they otherwise would have been. So you're talking about, over the long term, hundreds of billions of dollars in cuts for the people who need that money most. The Medicaid expansion, where it has been expanded, will be rolled back, but rolled back slowly enough, the theory is, so that the senators who voted to roll it back won't suffer consequences by the time the public feels it. So you see uh, a lot of politics but in terms of the substantive improvements that were promised in the health care system, either by repealing Obamacare or by fixing Obamacare, none of that's in the bill. So, Drew, let's uh, emphasize uh, how the fundamental nature of Medicaid is being uh, changed. As many people realize, uh, with discretionary appropriations, uh, the government, the, the Congress, picks a particular dollar amount that it's willing to spend but in contrast, a mandatory program such as uh, Medicaid, an entitlement program, it, the Congress does not set a specific dollar amount. Uh, the, how, the, the cost that the government ends up occurring is a function of how many eligible people utilize to whatever degree of services, and it's open-ended. So however many eligible people show up and need health care, they get it, and the government pays for it. And so we have a fundamental uh, new uh, principle here that the government is going to decide. X amount is what we're willing to spend for the year, and after that, a state uh, is on its own. So uh, ultimately, uh, the, the states will, will still be responsible to its citizens. And so the question is, even if senators, for example, escape the, the consequences, what about down the road for for governors and state politicians. Well, I think that um, having Gary here today is is exciting because not only does Gary have a wealth of healthcare uh, expertise, but he also is a resident of a state that is going to be facing a lot of challenges, uh, a state that has dramatically expanded Medicaid, but then also now faces uh, a, a ballot initiative uh, regarding single-payer system. And Gary, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that initiative and some of the challenges that we've discussed uh, that you see with, with that? Well, as of right now, there's a bill that's moving through the uh, legislature. It was a Senate bill that would create a single-payer program in California. It's gone through its House of Origin, meaning the Senate. It's now in the State Assembly, and it's being debated there. Uh, if it's successful, it then go to the governor, and, and Governor Brown would then either, of course, either he, he would sign it or he would veto it. For, for it to be adopted as a single-payer program, there would be a number of different changes that would have to be made to the California Constitution, and that's where initiatives would come in. You would have the expenditure limit called the GAN limit that um, voters would need to weigh in on. You would have the additional taxes and fees to implement a single-payer that would be subject to a two-thirds vote and a separate initiative. There would be a variety of things that would need to happen, even if this bill did pass, before it could be truly be law and implemented in the state of California. So one of the things that we have discussed internally is uh, a major difference in the Senate bill from the AHCA is that the Senate bill 
uh, removes the individual mandate from the ACA and does not replace it with any sort of incentive for people to stay in the insurance market. Uh, some have speculated that this will cause the uh, the entire system to crumble, and perhaps that was what was intended. Uh, I also think that there are uh, people who believe that if this particular effort to repeal and now replace the ACA fails, that we could find ourselves in a situation where there are Democratic members pushing again for a national federal single-payer system or Medicare for all. One point we should make clear that notwithstanding all the talk of Obamacare repeal, Obamacare still serves as the as, as the foundation, the the uh, the infrastructure. Because everything the House and Senate is doing are terms and changes to the ACA, but the ACA is still there, and there are actually limitations on how many changes. Uh, that the uh, could be made because we're using the reconciliation process, and 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 there's certain only certain types of provisions can be in reconciliation. So, but on the individual mandate, uh, we should always point out that the inv- individual mandate and the uh, the provisions about uh, not denying people with uh, pre-existing conditions are two sides of the same coin. So the the Senate bill gets rid of individual mandate altogether. You know, the House bill stated it was getting rid of the individual mandate, but it had a, a separate policy that's, that had somewhat the same effect, and there was there was a strong incentive to stay within the program. The Senate bill eliminates the individual mandate and does not replace it with anything. Yet the Senate bill says it fully protects uh, people from denial of coverage based on pre- pre-existing conditions. So how does that work in the end? Well, from the point of view of someone who worked to protect and promote uh, Obamacare, I would say that the only thing wrong with the individual mandate now is it's not onerous enough. It doesn't cost people enough, if you're talking about fixing policy, to really force enough healthy people to buy health insurance. And if you were trying to make the program work, if you were trying to extend health coverage to virtually everyone in America, you wouldn't get rid of the individual mandate. You'd double the individual mandate. That's the way to. That's the way to fix it. Well, as someone who is uh, uh, very high up uh, uh, in the structure of, of HHS and the Obama administration, providing uh, uh, counsel on these matters, do you see any way uh, that the system can, uh, in fact, uh, take everyone uh, with whatever health condition they may have and still f- function? Without the individual mandate. Right. This is the subject of, of daily conversation at the highest level at HHS. You can't do it without the individual mandate. We didn't really talk about increasing the individual mandate. That's a decision for Congress. But it was clear enough that you didn't have enough healthy people signing up. If you expanded Medicaid throughout the country, which is what Congress thought it was doing, what the president thought he was doing, when the Affordable Care Act was enacted into law, then you'd have Medicaid scooping up a lot of unhealthy, poorer patients that the health insurance companies would then not be required to cover. And part of the reason you see this chaos in the health insurance market is they've had to cover far more unhealthy people who are signing up for coverage than they expected. That was a miscalculation. No one really knew what that market would look like. But if you were diverting those people into Medicaid, thereby sharing the cost throughout the country, throughout the healthcare system, throughout our tax system, then the insurance companies would be much better able to function 
profitably, and you need the individual mandate to make that work. You know, Drew, California is a very interesting case because arguably it's the most successful of all the marketplace situations covered California, as, as it's called, and that it ado- was an, California is an early adopter. Uh, California started out quickly, uh, thoughtfully, and in, I was just in a meeting with some of the folks from Covered California a few weeks ago, and they have exceeded their target levels for the number of, you would say, younger and therefore healthier individuals. Mm-hmm. So your risk pool is very different yep. in California, unlike other states that are having these problems. And I can't really point to why, because you're absolutely right that uh, a higher individual mandate would is more of that stick, and people have tended to respond more nationally to the, to the stick to be to get enrolled. Uh, and to have coverage, but um, Cover California did something right, and and um, the most of the insurance companies in California are really doing well and profiting from being a part of of the Cover California program. Uh, well, and that's great news, of course. I think pulling in those young, healthy people, basically healthy millennials was the biggest practical challenge that we at HHS faced going into that fourth open enrollment period. They're out there. It's hard to persuade them that they're going to get sick. Frankly, (laughs) if they're healthy, they think they're going to be healthy forever. And it's hard to get them to sign up for insurance. The way they consume media inputs is so fragmented, it's not like you can just advertise on CBS News you know, three times a week, and you're going to capture them. There is no one medium through which you reach that that tipping point, that huge number of them. So, with this dramatic shift now in Medicaid, uh, we we saw some expansion states, like as you said, California and others that were uh, that were very successful in the expansion. And now we're going to see a six year phase out or scaling back of of the Medicaid expansion. I'm wondering, Gary, what does that look like as a safety net provider in a state like California for the patients that your providers are seeing? Well, and you say a six-year fade out. I look and I immediately see in the bill that, that the block grant will be effective in 2019. So we're looking two years out. And to me, as somebody who who is who looks and says what, how successful Medicaid or Medi-Cal, as we call it in California, has been, how many people have become a part of that program. I think it's now one in three Californians is now on, on Medi-Cal. Um, and that's because the state also did its own state-only expansion, as it's called, using only state funds to add additional populations on top of that, that a block grant we... We in the health center world have always been concerned about because there are federal assurances that guarantee that health centers and the investments that we have made and the work that we do in underserved communities, most of our uh, patient population is is uh, on Medi-Cal. At, at, at Borrego Health, it's 85%, I believe it is at this point. It's gone up tremendously. Um, that when you have a block grant and you have solidified it with a, just a small incremental change on a year-to-year basis, that that really puts a lot of pressure on the state, especially for when we do eventually go into the downward cycle in the economy and you'll have more people that, unfortunately, I mean, just natural economic cycle, people are out of, out of jobs or their uh, job cuts them back. They're no longer eligible for uh, employer-based uh, health care and they're going to need to go on, uh, on Medi-Cal. 
but yet you don't have the funds to be able to expand that. The pressure will be tremendously placed on the state of California. Uh, and we've, we saw what happened during, during the recession and, and how, what a deficit the state had and how it had a struggle with, uh, with meeting its budget from year to year. So I'm sure that you will see uh, a, a pretty dramatic change in, uh, in the types of patients that you're seeing and in the types of services that your patients are requiring. Can you tell us a little bit about how it changed when the ACA was implemented? Did you see some changes uh, in your patient population or the types of services? So, for example, did you see uh, more people in, in urgent care clinics, fewer people in emergency rooms and, and, and that sort of thing? And, that, and we did. And one of the things we started to do was to coordinate coordinate with uh, local hospitals as they were incentivized to try to divert people away from the emergency room, which, as we all know, is, is one of the most costliest forms of care within our health care system. So we set up urgent care in a, its centers in a couple of areas, worked with the hospitals to see how we could get the word out. Uh, one particular hospital, I recall, was uh, Palomar Hospital, and they had two locations. They had closed, closed the older one, and because they had seen that 80% of the people being seen in their emergency room were better served either in primary care or urgent care. We opened an urgent care center. They helped to educate people to come to our urgent care center and have just as good, if not better care, and even quicker care. And still, we would work with them when, if we needed to make a hospital transfer for somebody that truly was a, in emergency need. And that was only a three-mile distance. It was very close to be able to do something like that. So there were uh, great changes that we were starting, that California started to make within how health care was provided in a much more efficient, economical, and, and uh, well-timed system. Uh, Gary, you started to talk about Medicaid and the economic cycle. One of the things that's strange but, but important to be aware of about what's happening now is that we're making a huge entitlement cut at a time when we're relatively prosperous and the economy is in great shape. Everyone in America benefits from Medicaid because Medicaid as an entitlement is a countercyclical spending program. Countercyclical meaning that if the economy declines, if we're in a recession, more people out of work, more people getting Medicaid, that money gets spent immediately, so it gets pumped into the economy. It's stimulus in other words. In other words, what we're going to see here with block granting and capping is that Medicaid won't expand. It's now inelastic. And if more people are out of work, there's no more money. Not only are they not covered individually, but everyone who benefits from the general health of the economy, and that's everybody, now loses because the money is not being pumped back out into the economy. We can't predict where we'll be economically in six years or eight years or ten years. But if we're in a recession... When the expansion is rolled back and we're operating under block grants, the macroeconomic impact of that for all Americans could be catastrophic. When look at the connection to hospitals as well. Uh, historically, hospitals uh, have had a lot of problems with uncompensated care, people coming to emergency uh, emergency rooms, and the uh, Obamacare has uh, helped helped with that. And so what happens when uh, the Medicaid expansion is over? Where do these people go. Uh, perhaps some show up at uh, uh, community health centers. Uh, others show up in uh, hospital emergency rooms. How does the overall health system absorb those costs? What happens to the, uh, uh, the, the economics of, uh, of hospitals? A lot of local governments are going to wind up paying those emergency room costs. You're going to have people who 
whose illnesses could have been averted through ordinary preventive care, who are instead going to present with serious problems at the emergency rooms, one way or another, the taxpayers pay, or people who are already insured pay. And this has a very acute effect in rural communities. I mean, rural hospitals in particular um, have had a very difficult time in maintaining their, the balance between their budget and providing the services that only they can, they can, ha- they can provide, uh, along with some of the, the community health centers. There are no other providers for you know, dozens, if not in some cases hundreds of miles around. So if you're then changing this, and you're going to have a greater effect on uncompensated care going to a rural hospital that's already teetering on the edge and just able to get by, you're going to see additional rural health, rural hospital closures. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, that we talk a lot about this bill as being a health care bill, and it's really a health insurance bill, and it's making fundamental changes to the health insurance marketplaces, but it isn't necessarily touching the health care delivery system in this country, and that seems to be marching in a whole different direction. I mean, what we're talking about when we're talking about reducing uh, the Medicaid expansion, taking more people off of health insurance is encouraging fragmented care. And yet on the other side, you know, the health care delivery system is moving toward a much more connected form of, of delivering health care. So it's a very fundamental disconnect. Uh, and you'll see, I think you'll see that uh, in and among the different populations and the types of insurance that people have. And you could have a more efficient system with more thorough delivery system reform for people who have money yep. and, and no system or, or an emergency-only system for people who don't. Really a two-tiered situation, much more severe than anything we've had here before. So we've outlined a lot of uh, gloom and doom, but the reality is the Senate is going to vote on this bill. So, Laura, what do you think we are looking at in terms of time frame right now? What can we expect next week or in the coming weeks? Uh, when will the Senate take a look at this? Well, um, we're expecting the CBO score back on this bill early next week, and then the Senate is likely going to take it up before they leave, before the the July 4th recess. Um, You know, Kate and I's second favorite podcast behind the Brownstein Healthcare podcast is Pod Save America. Um, And the, the folks on Pod Save America had minority leader Chuck Schumer on the show earlier this week. Um, And he seemed, um, somewhat resigned, uh, by, or constrained by procedural, um, you know, at this point that the, the Republicans would be able to jam this through um, and seemed much more focused on, you know, from a political perspective, what can Democrats do on the campaign trail to, to really uh, message this as a, as a process failure and as a policy failure. So I think that overall the, uh, the reconciliation portion is limited to 20 hours of debate. Uh, divided equally among both sides, and then first-degree amendments and second-degree amendments. I believe it's a total of three hours of debate. So we're looking at something around a you know 23-hour process before they move to what's known as the voterama. Uh, and I believe each of those amendments has is limited to a, about a minute or so of debate. So it looks like there is the potential for uh, Republicans to move this through. Uh, what should we be looking at? Who should we be looking at in terms of potential no votes? Uh, just as a reminder, the uh, the Senate Republicans can only afford to lose two senators uh, and still pass this bill with uh, Vice President Mike Pence being the actual tiebreaker. So, if there are more than two on this list that we uh, that we're getting ready to talk about, then I think that Senate Republicans are in a bit of trouble. Through who do you think we should be looking at? Well, my starting point would be putting aside the rumors that are in the the newspapers or online, I should say. My starting point would be to map the opioid crisis 
against the states of the Republican senators. And I haven't seen this done thoroughly. But, for example, Alaska is one of the states uh, most deeply affected. I think they had a rise in overdoses of something like 35 percent last year. So Senator Murkowski, because of women's health issues and desire to protect Planned Parenthood, and for various reasons, a relatively independent senator actually did once run for re-election as an independent um, I'm not giving her political advice directly. She's not asking me. But I would be very worried about Medicaid is the main program through which we treat opioid overdoses and opioid treatment. If you're cutting back Medicaid, then these states that are heavily affected, Shelley Moore Capito, the senator from West Virginia, is also viewed, among some at least, as possibly on the fence. West Virginia hit terribly hard by opioid overdoses. And the same thing for Maine, where Susan Collins is on the fence. I think they had a 25% increase in overdoses. These put huge strains on the healthcare system along the lines we were talking about. They impose all kinds of uncovered costs on hospitals, police forces, um, paramedics, all those taxpayers who think they're getting savings because um, the government's role may be cut back are going to find they're just paying for it and paying more for it through different from different accounts with different checks. You're going to keep paying for it, and it's going to be more expensive, but more people are going to die first. So we've heard Shelley Moore Capito. We've heard Lisa Murkowski. Laura, do you have any thoughts of other senators we should be looking at through this process? Well, I was just reported about an hour ago um, that Rand Paul is is likely on the fence against the, the current version of this bill, but I think that a lot can change between now and when the, the bill is, is, is brought to a vote, but he's another individual that I'm, I'm watching. So we're already up to three. Pete, do you have any thoughts on senators to watch? Uh, not particular senators, but it's just... it's. Uh, Procedurally, in in a more normal situation, senators could vote for this legislation and say, "Well, we'll fix it in conference." Well, you know, people who work in this town and work on the Hill are always going to fix things in conference. Uh, Obamacare was going to get fixed in conference until Senator Kennedy died, as we may remember. But that's not the way this is. Uh, if the, whatever the Senate passes, uh, I think. Probably the House is going to be told that this is your only op, uh, option. Vote it or, or, or let it all go down. And this is being pitched as a must-do uh, for the Republican Party's entire agenda. So a senator who votes for this has to know uh, that there's a very good chance uh, it will become law. And so you have to be accountable for what you're about to do. Many millions of people are going to lose health care. And you have to be willing to accept that if you vote for this legislation. So for even senators who've not expressed themselves publicly about this, how are they going to uh, wrestle with that decision? One more thought on that. Um, in the 2018 election cycle for the Senate, the most vulnerable Republican senator, probably the most vulnerable senator from either party, is Senator Dean Heller from Nevada. Nevada is a state where you have a Republican governor, Brian Sandoval, who presided over a Medicaid expansion, which means that unlike some of the other red state senators, Heller would very specifically be voting to take Medicaid away from hundreds of thousands of his own constituents. So, so that has to hit home. Um, you can picture the, the uh, hostile advertisements that his opponent will run. I mean, the ads write themselves. So he's in a bind 
for policy reasons, but also most acutely for political reasons. Well, Drew, let me add, in regards to Nevada, they are on the precipice of adopting a, a program called Medicaid for All. I, I believe it's passed. Both of their houses are about to by significant numbers. Well, it's quite a, this is quite a drama then, if you're just looking at it from Senator Heller's point of view. If this were, if this were the health care slightly boring version of House of Cards. He'd be at the center of this episode, right? Well, we've identified more than the two senators that can be afforded uh, the Republicans to lose. So that being said, how what, what, what chance do you give this bill of passage on a, on a 100% scale? How, how far are we going to go here? Is this bill dead on arrival like a president's budget? Are we going to work through this? Are we going to be here through next weekend? Uh, Pete, what do you think? Well, just based on what I said earlier, this is a difficult decision, and it seems to me that there's a, there's a decent chance that the, the requisite three senators will have enough reservations. Uh, and, you know, you can come out with uh, your opposition now with the understanding that uh, this bill just came out. We can work on it. We don't have to pass this by July 4th. And and by God, this is the Senate, okay? The Senate is the deliberative body. You don't hand something to senators and say, pass this. Perhaps you can get away in some cases with that in the House, but the Senate is less likely. And as part of all this, to me, a very interesting question is if, if it's unclear whether um, Senator McConnell has the votes, will he bring it up for a vote next week, even with the possibility that it will fail? Politically, I think the best-case scenario for Senate Republicans, this is going to sound terribly cynical, is they vote for it as they promised their constituents they would, and it fails so they don't have to live with the consequences. But that would, if it's going to fail by design, then it will have to be worked out behind the scenes. Who, uh, who cast those votes? Yes. Uh, that, that's, that's tricky, but you may have a number of senators who actually do want to vote against it if McConnell would free them to vote against it. Um, we're getting deep into the Republican caucus, at least as, as a couple of Democrats. Um, but this is a real political problem. Well, also, if it does come up for a vote and it fails, haven't they uh, done their job in, in terms of their campaign promises? That, hey, that's exactly we did our best and it failed. We've done our duty. They'll blame the Democrats because the Democrats will still have cast most of the votes against it. So whether you have two Republicans voting against it or five, the public won't really be aware of that. They'll just know if it passed or failed. They'll blame the Democrats for that. And that may be true, but I do think that the Republicans need a win for their agenda to move forward. I think that there was a point in time when Senator McConnell would, be, would have been willing to put up a bill and let it fail and say, we, we fulfilled our campaign promises and now we're moving on to the other things that the American people sent us here to do. I think they have now gotten the sense that they need this win in order to move on and have a successful legislative agenda. We are already more than halfway through the year and, and we cannot say that we have, uh, we have accomplished very much as, as a, as a Congress. And so I think that that's the message that he is sending at this point. And I think that that's the message that's being felt by Senate Republicans. I second that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and there's one other person that um, is big name in this town that we haven't discussed and has a big stake on this, and that's President Trump. And to this point, what legislative achievements has he had? Is this the one that he has to have? Well, on that note, we shall see. And I believe that next week will be a very interesting time. So, Gary, if you want to stick around and uh, not go back to California, maybe you could hang out and we could do this again. But thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. And, and thank you for this conversation. 
Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.